Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Naz Modirzadeh is back as co-host. Welcome back, Naz. Great to be back, Richard. Today, we're putting out a special episode for International Women's Day on gender and conflict. We'll talk about gender dynamics and women's and girls' experiences in particular in conflicts in different parts of the world. We'll talk about how violence affects men and women differently and women's diverse roles in those crises. We'll also talk about some countries' adoption of feminist foreign policies and how that looks from around the world. We're very happy to be joined again by Azadi Moveni. Azadi is our Gender and Conflict Director. She leads all our work on women, peace and security. She's also an author. The New York Times described her recent book, Guest House for Young Widows, as powerful and indispensable. Azadi, hi. Welcome back on. Hello to both of you. Thank you for having me. So let's start with Cameroon and the conflict in the country's Anglophone areas. We've seen fighting between security forces and separatist rebels and violence by both sides against civilians that has been grinding on since 2016. Can you tell us something about how women and girls are experiencing this conflict? Yes, absolutely. Um, So the origins of the Anglophone crisis go back to... Uh, a civil society protest movement that was seeking greater protections for Anglophone legal and educational systems. Um, the government cracked down on that protest movement, which became an armed rebellion. The last year uh, of, of this conflict, 2021, was particularly bloody. So what the report tries to do is to look at all of this refracted through women's specific experiences, you know, the political demands, the political strategies and tactics that they've used uh, specifically. We felt that it was important to see how women were navigating their way through it, how their tactics were different and what drew them to separatism and to peaceful activism uh, at the same time. 
What was really striking was that the insurgency from the very start drew in women. Women were very active from the absolute outset. They were rebels and part of the secessionist movement. So they were seeking a political outcome, uh, a secessionist one through violence and insurgency. Women supported men who were joining militias. Uh, they you know, encouraged them and they themselves joined the revolts. Many were politically committed to separatism. Some of them were driven by anger, a desire for revenge. Uh, there was an incident in 2016 when security forces put down a protest at a university uh, around fees. And several female students were tortured, uh, abused. And one of those survivors joined a separatist militia. She was essentially um, sort of moved towards a, a more radical political position because of that experience. Uh, in another province, a girl who had witnessed the killing of her family members and the rape of another girl then took up arms as a separatist. So a sort of range of motivations by women on the separatist side, uh, but not always violent. You know, there were women who are seeking the same political outcome, but peacefully. There are women who are activists who are just seeking to end the conflict. They are not driven by the same political outcome as those who uh, are, are actively seeking secession. Um, another really striking thing was how much of the secessionist movement and the diaspora is women-led. So in Europe and North America, um, some of this quite hardline activism is, is led by women um, these activists hold demonstrations in front of UN headquarters and foreign capitals. So really much of the, uh, the diaspora movement for separatism is, is woman-led. And then lots of community-based work that the women do that I guess we would call uh, peace building, you know, helping communities promote dialogue amongst each other, hosting victims, um, working with church and social groups. There's a lot of gender-based violence in this conflict, so helping women cope with that. And a whole sort of range of ways in which women are also impacted by this. So that's another strand uh, of the report, sort of charting the toll that the conflict has taken on women. Can I ask, in what way do you think that including this perspective of women, but also kind of opening up the scope of how you understand the role of women changes the way that we do research on a conflict like this? Well, having done... I think by now a significant amount of work on inclusion, equitable inclusion in in peace processes and peace tracks. I see this work as um, getting a head start on outlining why um, having a broad based uh, sort of gender inclusive process when there are talks uh, is important. You know, oftentimes we're playing catch up when it comes to inclusion and peace processes. Uh, the the UN or different international actors uh, have a process, you know, kick off a process and, and part, part of the way through it's sort of seen as not inclusive enough. And then there's a lot of scrambling uh, to make the case for why women need to be at that table because uh, they have networks in rural areas. They have inroads with separatists. Uh, they're very much at the forefront of negotiating some of the dynamics of the conflict. In Cameroon, school closures uh, have been part of the separatist strategy, but women in those communities have seen the impact of that on children and on families. So they took the lead in convincing the separatists to drop that aspect of their strategy. So they're politically enmeshed in the tactics of the separatists. They're part of their ranks uh, and they're part of civil society. So outlining 
early on, before talks have started, the myriad ways that women are involved, driving, working to diffuse, I think makes implicitly the case why when a process begins, they need to be a part of it because it will be more effective. They will be able to you know, use their networks, all of that influence and um, political heft that they've developed over the course of you know, being deeply impacted by all of this violence, by kind of pursuing their aims. You know, they need to be part of whatever process uh, from the very beginning rather than eventually. And so let's shift to Pakistan, very different part of the world, and, and talk a, a little bit about Pakistan's northwest. So the Pakistani tribal areas, what used to be the federally and provincially administered tribal areas, which is now Khyber uh, Pukhtunwala uh, was brought under regular constitutional rule, I think, a few years ago. It's, of course, where Malala Malalai Yousafzai, the young activist who received the Nobel Peace Prize for her promotion of girls' education, despite being shot by the Pakistani Taliban. It's also where, where she's from. And as Naz mentioned up top, we just published a report looking really chronicling the uh, the struggles of women in the tribal areas, not only for peace, but also for, for, for their rights and a say in how they're ruled in an area where, you know, those have, have, have sort of long been denied them. Do you want to say a word or two about that struggle? I have to say, I think this is one of the most extraordinary reports. The way that it sort of tells the socio-political evolution of this tribal belt of Northwest Pakistan through the lives and activism of women. Um, the way that it sort of tells the history of the region, the contemporary history of, of the region, uh, in this painterly way, sort of showing the different um, dimensions of, uh, of oppression and patriarchy and political inequality that the women have experienced and how they fought back against that. It's, I think it's, um, it's very sophisticated and, and quite intersectional. You know, it shows uh, the ways in which uh, women have been confronting, um, you know, an area that's been rife with militant activity, counterinsurgency, um, under a very particular and specific form of uh, legal um, sort of exceptionalism up until 2018. You know, it was a sort of region of Pakistan that was apart from the sort of judicial oversight uh, and constitutional oversight and legal protection of the rest of the country. So the report sort of tells the whole story of this region, centering women's experiences. It's sort of a masterclass in how to do um, sort of a gendered political analysis, almost as sort of political and social history. And I think one of the really challenging points that it makes is that it pushes back against this conventional idea that the one thing that women in this area of Pakistan in these tribal areas have been um, up against and oppressed by is Islamist militants. Uh, it really shows that the reality that oppressed them, that led to kind of violence with impunity against them that led to um, young girls being given away uh, as minors to settle disputes, um, these sort of customary laws that essentially women were 
that this regime of customary law was profound in affecting women's lives. I think it was one of the most brutal and oppressive places in the world, probably, um, to be a woman in, in the 2000s and 2010s. Uh, women had really no rights as citizens. Um, men often didn't either under, under the same regime. I think it's important to point out, but men benefited from patriarchal customs that gave them power and families in the community in ways that women didn't have. Uh, so it was the sort of long struggle of women to push back against this um, this sort of exceptionalized um, hold of customary law against this corner of Pakistan that became one of the driving forces to uh, bring this whole area under the jurisdiction of the rest of the Pakistani legal system and court system. There's this theme that kind of comes out, which I think is has sort of strong echoes in other places as well, that women in particular are sort of caught between these, as you say, very traditional, very patriarchal sort of uh, codes and militants who want to upend that old order but end up being just as brutal. Do you want to say a little bit about the relationship between the spread of militancy in the tribal areas, particularly after the uh, toppling of the Taliban in Afghanistan in 2001 and the sort of rise of the Pakistani Taliban across the border and how sort of women experienced initially in some cases welcoming the sort of change that militants might have brought, but then, you know, coming to terms with the fact that actually what they were bringing was just as bad, if not worse. Absolutely. So, Richard, you put your finger on um, what is such a crucial dynamic to understanding that that period of, of this area's history. Um, and as you say, it's a dynamic that we've seen in many other contexts when jihadist groups pitch themselves as having uh, a gender strategy to women. They uh, appeal to uh, what women are up against, state neglect uh, in this case, um, a, a system of customary law called rewaj that really was deeply oppressive to women. And they were able to sort of present their agenda as more progressive. They presented themselves as having um, a rights-based program for women uh, based on Islamic law. Uh, so initially, that's how they sort of marketed themselves to women. Um, and women found that appealing at first. You know, they were looking for any kind of means, political. I think they were ready to, to turn to any force that could offer them an alternative. Uh, so many women sold their jewelry, they sold their gold, and they donated the proceeds. Uh, to militant leaders, uh, their situation was just so dire. One woman told us that they would support just whoever engaged them. Um, and then in time, you know, I think quite quickly, it became clear that that was all very instrumental, that the militants had really no intention of having a more progressive um, sort of rules-based uh, uh, regime or, or system um, for, for women at all. And, and that's when support for them uh, eroded. And of course, that's when we see in parallel um, the significant kind of step up in the Pakistani military's counterinsurgent campaign, which completely, you know, upended women's lives. So the Pakistanis, once militants actually sort of turned on the Pakistani state itself, instead of uh, focusing mostly across the border on US forces and the new Afghan government, once that happened, this sort of prompted these very heavy counterinsurgency operations, which certainly dealt militants a blow, but were also brutal. I mean, how, how did women experience those? That resulted in enormously large-scale displacement for women, um, which came with, uh, of course, um, a, a lot of challenges of, of its own. Um, but 
you know, large numbers, tens of thousands of women had to leave their leave their homes, leave their towns, uh, and move to urban areas where they became IDPs. Um, but very sort of counterintuitively, this experience of displacement um, was uh, ended up exposing them to a whole new way uh, of, of life for women in urban areas that they hadn't seen before. Uh, women were given, many of them, ID cards for the first time, which enabled them to access health services that they had never had um, any any access to before. Um, ID cards that would later, you know, enable them to vote. They saw women like themselves working as medics and as teachers, um, having the freedom to move within a city. So they were exposed to urban life um, and a whole sort of different social and cultural outlook for women, you know, the possibility of, of, of work and, and being in the labor force. Uh, so when they eventually went back to their home areas, they sort of took all of these experiences with them. And they found new skills and they took that social exposure uh, and they organized themselves. And there was a rich period of development of civil society, of of networks that were coming together uh, and able to articulate specific demands for legal change, for more accountability in this area. So in a way, the story of displacement um, kind of contained within it the momentum for what became this powerful political movement for reform. I agree. This is a really remarkable report and a masterclass, uh, I think, on a number of fronts. But I was particularly struck by the fact that the recommendations focus more on the kind of change that is being sought rather than the actors who would carry it out. And it, it struck me that unlike um, many sort of external policy um, observations, it doesn't really focus very much on the international donors or on foreign actors. And I'm wondering if you could speak to who, who should we understand as the key drivers of the kinds of change that women want to see in the frontier areas? Uh, that's a great question. I think this report is incredibly pragmatic in looking to a Pakistani institutional political audience for the for the changes it puts forward. Um, it's it's very granular. You know, it, it makes the case that uh, women need to be recruited into the police. They need to receive legal training. Uh, they need to have identity cards. So these are all sort of governmental bodies that need to take women more into account. Um, courts need to be set up in remote areas because while it's fantastic to have women able to access uh, the criminal justice system, they need to have a court that they can get to in a way that's practical for them. So it's a whole sort of range of um, steps that different institutions within the Pakistani government, within the local administration can take to make the implementation of these reforms actually uh, feasible. So let's talk a bit about Afghanistan and the question about why the sorts of activism that we see in the tribal areas of Pakistan takes a different form. So talk us through a little bit how you're thinking about the issues affecting women uh, and, of course, the kind of the last two decades of women's issues being understood as a pretext even for the use of lethal force in that country. I was really intrigued, Naz, by exactly these questions, uh, because this area, this tribal area of Pakistan, um, overlaps culturally, uh, certainly with 
um, regions of Afghanistan that share uh, Pashtun culture. So these are similar cultural norms with fairly severe prohibitions on women's status, access to work and public life, uh, to education. I think there are, to some extent, parallels with the IDP experience um, of women, you know, Afghan women, perhaps less um, in, in, the, in the areas bordering, but to some extent, you know, certainly uh, were displaced to Pakistan, some to Iran, uh, and were exposed to um, a different society, um, more urban places, and, and brought some of those norms back. But what is really different um, is that, of course, Afghan women on the sort of southern edge of the country that, that borders this area uh, were not experiencing and living through the kind of freedoms and access to public life um, and uh, inclusion uh, in public life that women in other parts of the country that were not so insecure, that were not battlefield regions, were experiencing. So while that part of Afghanistan was not entirely cut off from the rest of the country, they were sort of squeezed in the middle of a Taliban insurgency and an Afghan central government um, that left no space for the development of this kind of activism um, in, in the same way that it took root in Pakistan. Um, I think the access to health care, um, kind of basic fundamentals, um, certainly on the Afghan side, was a greater struggle. Azadi, could I ask a follow-up to that? So, I mean, you and I have discussed this a bit before, but there's a sort of argument that some people have made as the Taliban took over in Afghanistan last year, there's obviously been this massive curtailment of women's rights, opportunities for women, freedoms for women. It's been a, a devastating blow to many Afghan women. But I guess you had this argument that in parts of the country, especially rural areas, I think it's misleading to say there's an urban-rural divide, but you know, in some rural areas... Things didn't change that much for women after the Taliban takeover. And in fact, some welcomed the reduction in violence. As you say, you know, many had been caught in two decades of, of violence. And despite all the Western talk about promoting human rights and the genuine advances in parts of the country, many people in war-torn areas, you know, especially in the south, southeast, associated the US and NATO presence with violence by, as you say, not just foreign forces, but also by the, the Afghan army. So it's not, it's not so much about their aspirations. As you say, we did some research, others have researched this, you know, that shows that among women in rural areas, people want to send their girls to school, they want to be able to work, or they want a full role in public life. So it's not to deny that those aspirations exist, but the actual lived experience of the Western intervention was very different. Of course, people move around, so you know, things change in a city. It doesn't mean it has no impact on rural areas. But generally, in parts of Afghanistan, the experience of what the West was doing, the, the lived experience was not about promoting human rights. It was associated with you know, phenomenal levels of violence. So I think that that's an absolutely fair way of accounting for how women in the South and Southeast experienced the last two decades. Um, I think we, we get into a slightly tricky space when acknowledging that makes it difficult to reconcile or acknowledge that women in those areas at the same time were aware of potentially envious or uh, aspiring to or able to appreciate from afar some of the rights 
and opportunities that women in urban areas were experiencing, that they were somehow culturally frozen or cut off from the knowledge that women in the rest of the country were progressing. Um, this is something I think that we encounter in, in other country contexts where you've had a very brutal state that espouses feminism at the top level. Um, I'm thinking about, um, you know, Bourguiba era Tunisia, um, you know, periods of, of time in, in Iran. You know, you have states that are authoritarian, very brutal, um, that have harsh secret police, you know, violence in some form or another pervades the lives of many ordinary people. But those states do offer some rights, um, perhaps um, in a heavy-handed, top-down way to women. And over time, you know, I think women are able to assign or internalize or accept the benefits of that experience as it's handed down to them as women. You know, they are able to refract what comes down to them or what is symbolically meant to come to them. Um, you know, the story of these places is that, of course, none of these authoritarian uh, systems, women didn't benefit from top-down feminism or theoretical top-down feminism evenly at all. Um, but it became part of everyone's story. Um, so I think that's the... I think that's the sort of uh, twist that we need to be able to make, that acknowledging that overwhelming violence and the trauma of it and the unevenness of that kind of narrow top-down, not applying to everyone, um, theoretical progress for women does create a sort of new force of its own that may not be felt for another generation, but you know, it's part of the story. And Azadeh, can I suggest that part of it is about the weak vocabulary and concepts we have for talking about things like this, right? I hear part of what you're saying, uh, and I also see this reflected in the recent Guardian piece you wrote that I think we're going to talk about, is is the feminist lens is to encourage us to be able to understand complexity and the idea that there could be things that are both good and bad at the same time, right? And how do we, when we think about protecting civilians, when we think about protecting women in these communities, understand that they may want things that are in contradiction with one another, much like the rest of us do. So I think it's exactly in how hard it is to talk and write about this, that we find the, the generative power of looking at some of these um, foreign policy and conflict issues differently. I think that's beautifully put, Nas. Um, yeah, I think it's where we're sort of boxed in by a lot of this language around feminism and women, peace and security. And so we have to contort ourselves to, to sort of show that you can have illiberal, fundamentalist feminism that emerges as an outgrowth of top-down secular feminism. You know, it sounds like a very crude and jangly edged thing to explain, but this has been the outgrowth of, of so many of these of these systems that have sort of put, often with the backing uh, of the West, women, gender, feminism at the center of their projects. And we'll talk in, in a moment, not just about the Guardian article, but also about when countries say they have a feminist foreign policy. How does that sit with precisely the complexity you talked about? Azadeh, can I ask you one more about Afghanistan uh, before we move on? Obviously, there's this terrible 
humanitarian situation at the moment in Afghanistan that we've talked about on the podcast before. I think more than half of Afghans are uh, threatened by food insecurity, can't get enough to eat. The economy's tanked because, you know, in essence, Western sanctions have cut the country out of the financial system. There's no liquidity. And sort of there's this idea that you can't work with the Taliban until they change. You know, in essence, uh, part of the change is uh, perhaps about counterterrorism, cooperation, but part of the change clearly relates to their record on women's rights, that they allow girls to go to school, which they stopped. I think they've reopened girls' schools in some provinces, but it's still uh, a far cry from what it was. They allow women to play a, uh, you know, a role in, in, in public life. And yet women and girls are often the ones who are most suffering from the policies that have shut down the Afghan economy. So how do you square that, you know, this idea that you can't work with the Taliban until they improve their records on women's rights, but at the same time, the steps Western countries in particular are adopting until they do that are actually themselves harming women and girls? It's such a crucial and urgent question. And we're losing so much time deliberating this. Um, You know, I think that being able to avert or to offset the humanitarian disaster that's unfolding in, in Afghanistan is just from right now, this minute that we're talking, it's crucial to protecting women's most basic rights. I don't think there's the time to be able to push for unrealistic goals, especially when it means that we're dealing with problems that kind of, you know, I first worked in Afghanistan in in the early 2000s, you know, back in the time when maternal health was a priority, when there were you know, you could go miles and there were no basic services for women. There was no clinics. Um, you know, it's it's dispiriting to sort of be sort of catapulted back in time almost to kind of looking at the reality that, you know, some hospitals can't stay open. They don't have electricity. You know, doctors and nurses need to be paid. You can't sort of skip ahead to goals about education when the clinics aren't open, when the lights aren't on in the clinics, when women you know, risk dying because they're giving birth, you know, when families don't have enough food to eat and they're selling their children, they're selling their little baby girls. Um, So I think an approach that meets these basic needs, these humanitarian urgent needs, um, and and finds a pragmatic, effective way to negotiate with the Taliban on on these key issues around education uh, and, and other rights for women. And I think being realistic about how that's worked and and does work in some places, you know, the UN has successfully negotiated with the Taliban to allow girls back in secondary school in some provinces. Um, And it makes funds available dependent on that. So I think we just have to be terribly pragmatic on these questions. There's just no time. Azadeh, let's go to an area where you've done a huge amount of work and indeed that relates to the subject matter also of your book, um, the detention of uh, individuals in the Syrian conflict and particularly the Al-Hol detention facility. Uh, here again, it seems like um, for many uh, looking at this from the outside, it isn't clear what is the right thing to do or it isn't even necessarily clear sort of what is it that the women in these camps want. Um, can you tell us where do things stand and what does it look like to think about what's happening in Alho from a gender perspective? Well, this is a moment where we saw one of the most 
kind of awful concerns um, in our reports um, kind of borne out because last month, um, not in El Hol itself, but uh, another prison where men um, and adolescent boys, young boys are held, um, we saw uh, we saw a big prison riot, an ISIS breakout that sparked a 10-day battle between uh, ISIS supporters and the Kurdish um authorities, camp authorities, and, and prison authorities. Uh, we raise this as a real frightening possibility um, that these camps and these detention centers were insecure, that they were not guarded properly, and that there was a risk of ISIS detainees getting out, and there was a risk of ISIS breaking their supporters out. Uh, and at the same time, we said, this is an urgent frightening humanitarian situation where you have children, boy children, like in this in this prison um, that was the scene of this 10-day battle, there were young boys, you know, as little as 10, 12, um, who were separated from their mothers, you know, some of them from Western countries. I think there was certainly an Australian, um, I believe, and, and other Western nationalities. So we said that there are security risks. We said, you know, that Although it's incredibly hard to figure out what to do with this population of affiliated men, women, children, um, that without some sort of process of repatriation, a slow one, you're just going to end up with large numbers of facilities that are insecure, um, where children are at risk of all sorts of indoctrination uh, and abuse, uh, and and they're sort of sitting there targets for, for ISIS propaganda and also breakouts. Um, so that's kind of frighteningly what we've actually seen happen. So I got to say, as added, as a, a, this sort of very reasonable way to present it, right, which is the way you've just done. And and that's that it's very difficult for Western countries, and we're talking mostly about Europeans, I think Canada and Australia, that the judicial process, when you get people formally affiliated with ISIS back, the judicial process can be tough. You have people that have some history clearly with ISIS, but it can be difficult to get the whole story. It can be difficult to get the evidence to try them, to prosecute them. So what do you do? I mean, then you've got to keep your eye on them. Issues with surveillance, issues with resources, and that's sort of the rational way to explain Western government's reluctance to take people back. Of course, that sounds sort of maybe explainable. On the other hand, you know, are you are you kidding me? I mean, these are citizens of Europe, some of which are children that went when they were very young, some even taken by their parents, have ended up there really through no fault of their own in some cases, or, you know, at least due to decisions they took when they were very young, in some cases through by being manipulated and what Europe's going to wash its hands of them they're in these prison camps in the Kurdish held areas you know conditions far from ideal very real prospects they come to harm or escape to you know who knows what future I mean you know you can explain it in a reasonable way but I mean the other way to look at it is just like come on what sort of policy is that it's amazing I mean that's it it sort of boggles the mind And it's hard not to confront, you know, we understand that these are like, this this is seen by publics in Europe through the problem of terrorism, of course. So there is all of that fear mongering and all of those headlines in the tabloid press in Britain, in Germany, um, that have persuaded people, um, publics that, you know, these, even though they're children, they, um, they are evil. They are evil children. It's their fault that they were trafficked. It's their fault that they were groomed or, uh, that, 
that despite these these experiences that they still have to suffer, that the risk is, is too much to bring them back. Um, there was uh, a case in Germany recently uh, that was encouraging, um, encouraging in that uh, a German woman who traveled to Syria was, who returned to Germany, was successfully prosecuted for war crimes, essentially. Um, and this is really important because people... Uh, governments who elected politicians are really wary of dealing with exactly the kind of moral urgency and problem that you just laid out really well, say, well, we can't try them, but you can, you often can. Or there are lots of inventive ways that governments and security services have come to put women in prison or men in prison for a certain period of time simply for having joined the group. There are ways around it. It's not that they can just waltz back into a uh, European country, you know, X or Y uh, and, and go free. Um, there was a a woman, a Canadian woman um, that, that I met in El Hol camp or in El Roche camp in 2019 called Kimberly. Um, and I've been following her case um, because I met her and it was really clear that she suffered from pretty severe mental health issues. And that was part of how she had ended up kind of in Syria in the first place. Um, and really striking to see, you know, she's a Canadian citizen, striking to see Canada refuse her repatriation. She's, she's quite ill. Um, and there's a policy in Canada that would allow repatriation on the grounds of, of her deteriorated health. And there's a former U.S. ambassador who's offered to go to northeast Syria, escort her to Canada's consulate in Erbil. Um, but Canada is, is, is not interested. Um, she shares a tent, actually, this woman, Kimberly, with Shamima Begum, who's uh, one of the Bethnal Green girls who was trafficked to ISIS, um, who had three of her children die. She was 15 when she was recruited, and she was sort of told by a British journalist who was interviewing her in the camp that the UK had taken away her citizenship. So it's a... It's a it's an astonishing story, you know, seeing the abrogation of the legal norms, seeing children trafficked and seeing governments indifferent to it, you know, seeing the media participate almost as a character in the story of what happens to them. You know, here, here is the journalist saying, you know, how do you feel about the loss of your citizenship, um, you know, to a girl who just had three of her babies die. So it's um, striking to see that the norms that we would apply to young girls who might have been trafficked in, in sexual grooming gangs, you know, in other contexts, none of those protections, none of that understanding of what it means to be a trafficked young girl um, applies to any of these young women. And also the, even the idea that, you know, so much of the world's attention in the last week has been focused on the notion of heroic resistance, right? Or the idea of fighters being called from all over the world to go join with Ukrainian forces to defend against invasion. And without making any sort of absurd or sloppy equivalences, it just also uh, emphasizes how much this seems to become about the labels that we place on people, right? And that, that sort of as Richard just said, there is a point where you sort of just feel like thinking you, you're talking about children. You are talking about people in many cases um, where one has the sense that if they only had chosen to go to a different conflict or if only they they had different names, their fate would be seen completely differently uh, by their fellow citizens. Um, and at the risk of um, <laughs> making it an, an unfair uh, topic switch, how then in this light do we read the notion of 
feminist foreign policy. So some of the countries that are the very ones rejecting this repatriation um, are also countries that have women in significant foreign policy leadership positions and indeed are putting forward this claim of feminist foreign policy. Can you tell us what is this and how should we think about it or how should it frame the way we assess the foreign policy choices that such countries make? It's one of the most, uh, I think, pressing and, and potentially unsettling um, contradictions or challenges that you raise uh, in, in relation to feminist foreign policy. Because feminist foreign policy um, is sort of built on pillars or identified as part of the women, peace and security agenda, uh, which at its very center means including women in security decision making, including women uh, or being sensitive to the needs of women post-conflict. That's an absolute pillar of the 1325 agenda, out of which feminist foreign policy in, in virtually every country that pursues it originates. So ensuring that women's needs and girls' needs are attended to uh, after conflict, that women are demobilized and given support and prosecuted when appropriate. Um, this is at the very center of the women, peace and security agenda, um, that you protect women from war and you protect girls from war. And on the other side of war, you help them rebuild their lives, just like men who are demobilized and who go through different processes and serve their time and are given a sort of new contract have some incentive um, to not be a violent person anymore. Um, all of this, you know, the, 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 the ethos of the Women, Peace and Security agenda is to extend this kind of uh, policy and support to women on the other side of war. Um, and to see that so many significant countries that are at the forefront of the Women, Peace and Security agenda find it so difficult to apply its principles when it comes to hard security or when it comes to a politically difficult population. You know, of course, many countries in Europe are facing um, an ascendant far right. All of the, the the politics of it, you know, I think we're aware of. Uh, but I think it's a it's a sort of within the women, peace and security, feminist foreign policy world. It's it's a reckoning, just like Afghanistan has been a reckoning. You know, do we actually really believe any of these things, um, or are they rhetorically? ideas that we uphold because, you know, we want to present our democratic uh, engagement with the world in this enlightened way. Um, so I, I think this was, you know, now it's part of why this, you know, International Women's Day was a really hard one. You know, the atmosphere within activist circles, women's civil society circles was really bleak, you know, and I think people found it hard to congratulate each other. People found it hard to know what to say. Um, there was a kind of uh, a sort of bleakness over the whole idea of having an International Women's Day. You know, what are we what are we actually doing? Do we lose credibility by pretending to do different? But it's hard because, you know, at the same time, we're seeing a real rise in authoritarianism, populist authoritarianism that's targeting gender equality. It's not the time to fumble with this agenda, but we're up against challenges that really call into question, I think, its very aims and sincerity. Yeah, I think that's really well put and resonates with with activists and thinkers um, across, looking at a number of different contexts, um, including, of course, struggles within the global north on basic feminist uh, gains as well, as you say. 
Let me put this in the context of your guardian piece, which I think does a really beautiful job of engaging with so many of these morally complicated and incredibly difficult policy questions. And I wanted to focus in on a particular aspect of it. So one response to everything you just said is in a way to say kind of, well, an anti-imperialist feminism is about let's just focus on the domestic, right? That the West should stop manipulating and using gender as a pretext. And as you say, it has its own problems. But you say in this piece, that too doesn't really work for the women of the global South, because so much of their everyday lives are already being impacted by the decisions taken by the global North. And I'm wondering if you can say a bit about then how does one think about a feminist way of engaging in peace and conflict issues, both without the sort of externally imposed answers that have led to so many of the problems and that, as you point out, are sort of themselves morally uh, flawed, but also without retreating into some pretend notion that this can be dealt with within each country by itself. Well, if you pose this quite brilliant and difficult question to a very classical, uh, and by classical, I don't mean sort of government or state, but sort of activist, grassroots activist, uh, feminist foreign policy um, believer or theorist, um, they would say, I think, that you have to sort of reconceptualize war economies first and foremost. Um, because as long as you have structures in place, um, as long as countries like Sweden um, that have very uh, robust and in many ways inspiring feminist foreign policies, but at the same time, you know, export arms to countries that you're sort of locked in these power dynamics, that there's really, you can, you can sort of shrink the ambition of the agenda uh, and, and make it more about development, schooling, education. I think the United States has eventually landed here, which is, you know, just to be less ambitious, um, to not seek to um, kind of politically extend women's prospects um, in, in many of the countries where it engages. Um, but, but at the same time, because women are so often targeted in, in counterterrorism and they're brought into, um, into security measures and that whole world of, of dealing with the security imperatives that cause or that, that sort of shape Western governments' engagements in the, in the global South, um, it's, it's difficult to shrink the agenda and make it about schooling and make it about sort of development-led progress. Um, so the classical feminist foreign policy head would say, you know, you really can't achieve this agenda if you're going to um, export arms and have war economies that, that are built around that. Um, because otherwise, you're just sort of stuck in, in the loop in which it's illogical. Um, and, and, you know, and that's, that's hard. I mean, I think that's been, you know, at the very center, you know, you'll sit at you'll sit with the EU, you'll sit with NATO, you'll sit with really top women in this field and have this conversation privately and no one says it publicly because it just seems so kind of ridiculous to have a whole uh, superstructure of an agenda like this that is undermined by the way that our countries work. 
And couldn't you sort of widen out that argument to apply it to not just the feminist foreign policy, but peace building, even development writ large, that, you know, there's this sort of contradiction between on one hand the money and the investment that goes into that, and then the West's, the Global North's other policies. I mean, you mentioned weapon sales, but it could be, I don't know, trade rules or migration policy or the elites that the West does business with, the blind eye uh, people turn to, or even uh, the abetting of, of corruption, like a whole bunch of different stuff. So it doesn't just apply to, let's say, feminist foreign policy. Now, of course, in an ideal world, none of that other stuff, the weapon sales and so forth, w- would exist, but it does. It's a reality and maybe... You can make inroads into that. It's important to try and do so. But, you know, frankly, for the moment, politics in many cases is kind of moving in the opposite direction. But does that really mean that, let's say, feminist foreign policy, because that's what we're talking about, but you could make the argument as well about support for peace building or other things. Does that mean it's worthless while those structural things continue? I mean, surely that's too strong. I would have to believe and argue that there's still value to it because the alternative is... It's kind of abhorrent. The alternative is to sort of submit to those power structures or what's so deeply unjust or inequitable um, in in the wider context that we acknowledge, you know, is with us to stay. Um, And it's, you know, perhaps it's an activist view, um, uh, but I think it's worthwhile. Uh, I think we need to have some framework or standard to hold powerful actors, governments, aid agencies, um, we have to have a sort of metric to hold them to account. Um, So if we give up on these values or these agendas uh, or the sort of the aim of of challenging these inequalities or these systems that that um, that kind of cultivate them, um, then I think we have no we have no grounds for for any kind of um, peace work, protection, social justice at all. Um, so I think we're left with, you know, perhaps it's an unsatisfying position, um, but, you know, pessimism uh, of the intellect, optimism uh, of the will, right? What are we left with? I mean, in a way, though, I don't want to woman-splain your own column to you, but in a way, I hear what you're saying as being the feminist lens, the feminist move is precisely the ability to even talk about the fact that they are selling the arms. Part of what you're saying is we don't even have that conversation because we go to a nice meeting and we say, oh, development aid will increasingly be gender inclusive. Isn't it wonderful that women will be incorporated into this process? And I read your, your previous critique of WPS and this column as saying the feminist move is the one that says Thank you so much. It's wonderful that's your policy. Now let's talk about the arms sales, right? And that even being able to have that conversation is what becomes potentially transformative. Hundred um, percent. Otherwise, we're sort of locked in. Forty years ago, we're locked in the world where the only aspect of the women, peace, and security agenda we care about is rape and sexual violence, which is where the agenda was stuck for so many years, and the kind of unambitious gender equality or foreign policy kind of position. You know, I think this is where the U.S. is right now. It's really just looking at, you know, here's some sewing kits for women, economic empowerment. Let's try and do something about about rape. You know, that's that's a very different conversation. It feels like it's a 50 year old conversation, whereas the conversation with Sweden is much, much more up to the minute. Like, look at Yemen. 
we're all looking at it. You're looking at it, I'm looking at it. How are we going to resolve this? And I'd rather be having that conversation. Fascinating. Azadeh, it's always such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us and for this wide-ranging conversation. Thanks to both of you. So, Naz, you've got to have something to say after that amazing conversation with Azadeh. Yeah, I, I, I feel... Um, I think Azadeh was right that there, of, of course, there is a sense this year that International Women's Day uh, was bleak, right? That it's coming in a context, so many conflicts, um, so many uh, women and, and children and men suffering in the context of conflict. And I found it such an enlivening conversation and it made me have some hope for these issues that we all uh, care about. I think that Perhaps we are not the most unbiased people in, in talking about this, but I am really struck by the sort of ingenuity of crisis group in empowering Azadeh and her team to work on these issues. I, I think that this focus and the way that it is being framed and shaped is so powerful in part because it is willing to be critical of many of the fundamental concepts that a lot of work around prevention of conflict and development are built on, right? That in some ways, what this, what this program is doing is it's saying we have to be willing to have the conversations that are critical of many of the concepts and frameworks that we lean on to do this work. And the sense in which when we talked about these recent reports on Cameroon and on, on Pakistan, we didn't get a chance to talk about the Philippines, but also this really interesting work on on the Bangsamoro region. I mean, it, it really, I think what comes through is that this way of thinking about conflict and about peace also transforms how we research other issues, right? That, that the whole point is this isn't about gender as such, but it is about this lens allowing us to understand complexity um, in, in, in really important ways, right? When I look at these reports, I also feel like it's allowing me to see what's happening in both a much more contextualized way, but also in a way that, that helps me better understand the, the power and political dynamics on the ground. And the lens and the, the, the methodology as well, just simply who we, who we try to talk to and whose perspectives we, we include and we, we, we draw from in, our, in, in sort of making conclusions. Right. I mean, just the idea that the, the Pakistan report is so clearly not written from a perspective of asking women, please list for me the ways in which you've been victimized, right? You can see that these were interviews that took people as whole humans. Um, and, and it comes through so powerfully and from a region where we very rarely hear from women as anything other than, uh, victims of the decisions of men. And Naz, if you were to summarize what you feel about governments adopting feminist foreign policies so far? Sort of, what, what what would you say? How would you assess what they've been able to achieve by using that frame for their foreign policies? Yeah, so I guess I feel like it it really brings me back to the way Azadeh answered this question, which is one that there is not an easy answer to the question of what is the content of a feminist foreign policy. Right. And I think in a way what Azadeh was telling us was 
there is a version of a feminist foreign policy that is all about gender-based violence, rape, and interventionist policies that says that's the that's what it means to have a feminist foreign policy. And we want to go in, find the people that are responsible for sexual gender-based violence, put them on trial, and and use women as a basis for intervention in in the affairs of other states. Plus maybe some quotas for parliamentarians. Yes, exactly. That's right. Conditioned aid. Quotas, right? That, that's a feminist approach we're familiar with. And, and I think there have been women's organizations, mostly Western, that see that as a noble and laudable feminist approach to foreign policy. I think what Azadeh is saying is there is an alternative, which is this approach of saying it might be that what a feminist foreign policy looks like in Yemen is very different from what feminist foreign policy looks like in the Philippines. And it may be very different from what it looks like in Mexico. And that it it puts the burden on whatever state claims to be undertaking a feminist foreign policy to be able to deal with and address complexity, right? And to avoid slogans and avoid easy answers and really take that feminist label as an invitation to reorient the way that we think about um, how all human beings are affected by conflict. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work, including on gender and conflict, on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group. Thank you very much to our producers, Sam Mednick, Kevin Murphy, and to Finn Johnson. And thanks, of course, to all of you, all our listeners. If you have any suggestions or comments, please get in touch at podcasts at crisisgroup.org. If you enjoy the show, Please do leave us a positive rating or review and we hope you'll join us again next week. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.